0: Obesity has recently been classified as a medical condition that warrants further intervention, whether it's by diet, exercise, or even surgical intervention. And today's topic, we're going to explore the issues of obesity, hormones, and how it affects women and their sexual health. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Krichman, host of Sexual Health, General Health on ReachMD. And joining me today is Dr. Maida Taylor, clinical professor of OBGYN and reproductive sciences, of the University of California, San Francisco. Welcome, Ada. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today about such an important topic.
1: Thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me. So
0: I know that we've had a long history and we've talked a lot about hormones and changes in weight and what happens as a woman goes through the menopausal transition. And many women are really curious about how much is it really about hormones? How much is it about diet, metabolism? What are your thoughts about that?
1: I think there is a fairly good body of evidence starting to accumulate that indeed there is a reduction in your basal metabolic rate as you transition through the menopause. And how much of that is hormonal, how much of that is related to activity, how much of that is related to changes in body mass or body composition remains to be seen, but it it is true. Um, Women as they age require fewer calories, which means you either have to eat less or move more in order to maintain a stable weight.
0: So I know you're in the trenches and you're seeing lots of patients, and this is a really big concern because we know that weight is directly correlated to sexual self-esteem and how they feel about themselves, and very often we're talking about changes in appearance. How do you counsel the everyday woman to kind of maintain her weight and or lose an extra few pounds?
1: It is probably the single most difficult challenge and most common challenge you know you face in the office, or one of, one of the most difficult. And I think the cascade, it, it's more than just appearance. But appearance is kind of like the gateway to opening the conversation because the excess pounds also carry this vast panoply of enhanced risk for a whole variety of other diseases, and you have to kind of exploit both the personal disease history and the family disease history in order to perhaps get people to talk about this in a meaningful way beyond, I don't like the way I look. And body body, you know, dysmorphia is so prevalent in our society, and we have this totally unrealistic expectation of what you should look like based on mass media, the constant bombardment with thin as the norm on television and in print.
0: Right. You bring up some good points. You know, at the menopause, there's a lot of psychological things that are going on and psychosocial things. Kids may be moving out, parents may be getting older, and plus the issues of chronic medical disease. And as you mentioned, risk factor management, whether it's hypertension or diabetes, they all play a role. And you may see more medications and you may see that directly impacting sexual function. I know that there was recently some articles talking about bariatric surgery for the morbid obese and how that can certainly improve not over overall general health mm-hmm. and wellness but also impact sexuality and sexual function. What are your thoughts about surgical intervention for those that may qualify?
1: I just came from a talk on that upstairs and it is clearly clearly something that has gained traction although the lecture I just heard said the rates have been stable at about 125,000 procedures per year, 80% of which are performed in women. What's the driver that's bringing women as opposed to men in for that surgery? Is it the fact that obesity is clearly a fem- another female-dominant disorder? The comorbidities are frequently female-dominant disorders like gallbladder, And I think women, as I say, are under more pressure to maintain a, uh, an appearance more than men are. I think men are penalized less for being obese, than, although they suffer as well. It you know, just brings up the point you know, that women who come in who are complaining about their appearance and saying, you know, it must be my hormones, it must be, my, it must be menopause, it must be thyroid, it must be something wrong with me physically, and it, it's menopause. It's, you know, it, or some kind of, is there some magic hormonal pill you can give me to fix this? The answer I give them is, by the way, what's happening to your husband? You know, your husband, has he gained weight, too? Is he getting a bit of a gut? You know, and I assure you, nothing's changed in terms of his estrogens. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and you make a good point. I mean, I think that sexual self-image both can affect men and women, and we know that obesity and hypertension, diabetes, certain play roles in erectile issues. Mm -hmm. And again, we also sometimes see that the man is sabotaging uh, a woman's attempt at weight loss.
1: That's a very, very good point. I think, you know, particularly if you have a stable diet, if you have a couple, there can be dysfunctions on both sides. But the therapy also needs to be approached in a conjoint fashion that people lose weight, more readily and more effectively if the whole household is involved in the decision to make a behavioral change. You know, cleaning out the cabinets, getting the right foods in the house, getting the bad foods out of the house, scheduling meals, cooking, etc. works much better if you have a group effort to find a solution.
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Sexual Health, General Health on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Krichman, and I'm here with Dr. Maida Taylor, who's a clinical professor of OBGYN and reproductive science at the University of California in San Francisco. And we're talking about the complex interplay of obesity and hormones and sexual self-esteem. And we, you know, we're really talking about a whole cultural issue because very often, you know, we're seeing that homes are now changing because the kitchen is now open to the family room and everything centers around food and what have you. So it really takes a big cultural shift when we're trying to change habits that were very much ingrained. But what about exercise? What's the role Mm -hmm. of exercise and trying to get people moving? We see everybody's with these Fitbits and Mm -hmm. new things on their arm. Do you think that those things are of value for your patients?
1: Exercise monitors do not drive weight loss. They do not drive weight loss. But once a person is committed to the change. The monitor can serve as an adjunct. It can serve as a tool and an instrument for feedback and for reward. And it doesn't need to be an expensive $100 Fitbit or other electronic device. I like the really cool ones. I like them to look cool. There's one that you wear on a necklace, and it's a beautiful disc. It was designed by people who did the design for Apple originally. And it's absolutely beautiful, but... 90% 90% of those things end up in the drawer after six months. I love the feedback from just a simple pedometer, a good quality pedometer. I love seeing it tick off over 10,000, which doesn't always happen very often, but I love the idea of people love the feedback. They love the reward. There's a tremendous sense of reward to see that pedometer or that Fitbit or whatever else you're using, say that you fulfilled your goals. But Unless you're committed to the goal, the device is meaningless as an intervention.
0: You're right. And I I think it's also important that many women will come in with this concept of a quick fix. Mm -hmm. And they want the the magic pill that Mm -hmm. will instantly melt the pounds away without the effort. Did you find it yet? I haven't. I haven't, but uh, uh, we're still looking. I'm
1: waiting for it to be delivered. Do they have it on Amazon? Right.
0: And I I think the the issue is many women that I see would like a prescription. The effort they want to do is, you know, take a pill rather than change behavior. And I certainly think that we need to think about how medication may help for some Mm -hmm. people, Mm -hmm. coupled with behavioral changes. And too often, I'm seeing women that have gone for a medication therapy and then they have rebound. Mm-hmm. And then they get very discouraged and then the pounds just keep coming on and on and on and then we see, you know, many of the health consequences mm-hmm. for women.
1: Any of you know, I would call them the, the big guns and, and let's face it, the weight loss medications that are available are not magic bullets. All of the prescribing labels limit their use to 12 weeks, and if the patient hasn't achieved, you know, X amount of weight loss, and generally it's about four to five percent in that 12-week period of time, the uh, the labeling says to discontinue the medication, and I think a significant number of patients do not achieve those goals. This is also true for weight loss, you know rapid fire weight loss programs. Uh, uh, an acquaintance who you may know, one of the doctors who I see here, I ran into him at uh, one of the meetings and he had lost this incredible amount of weight. He looked absolutely fabulous. and I asked him about the program, and he told me, "It's one of these rapid weight loss programs here." They give you shots, they give you a a very highly restrictive diet, they give you uh, weight loss pills, etc. And I ran into him two years after that, again at a medical meeting, and he had not only regained all the weight, he had gained more. And this is the typical thing that you see, diets don't work. Or let's put it this way, all diets work for two weeks, and the solution is change diets every two weeks. Right, and
0: we've seen every kind of diet under the sun. The watermelon diet, the chocolate diet, the soup diet, the testosterone diet, you know, high carbs, low fat, high fat, low carbs. And again, I think it points to the concept that we've got to address behavioral issues. And sometimes it's the motivation of chronic disease Mm -hmm. that will impact you overall.
1: Best study I've seen in the past, I've been preparing for a talk on this topic as well, and the best study I've seen this month was, and I love this, because it's just the opposite of what I do, what you do, what everybody does, They took uh, overweight and obese women. They divided their calories up and told them to eat half of their calories, 1,400-calorie diet, to eat half of their calories at breakfast, and the other half of the group were told to eat half of their calories at dinner. So 700-calorie breakfast or a 700-calorie dinner, and the other two meals were 350. And at the end of the 12-week study period, the women who ate the majority, the large breakfast, lost much more weight than the women who ate their calories at night. And we all know that the killer, killer for weight loss, any program, is having a big dinner and then nibbling all night. The unconscious eating all night long. It's also estimated that people eat somewhere between 400 and 600 calories in unconscious eating all day long.
0: So there is truth to what I've been telling my kids about breakfast is probably the most important meal of the day. Well, Mita, thank you so much for being with us today. Unfortunately, we've ran out of time, but such an interesting topic and really will become much more relevant as we see the supersize sandwiches and gargantuan drinks and what have you, and certainly an issue with our children as they grow up. I'm Dr. Michael Critchman, and you've been listening to Sexual Health General Health on ReachMD. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com slash medicine to download this segment as well as others in this series. Thank you so much for listening, and again, thank you so much for Meta for taking the time to speak with us today.
1: Thanks. You're most welcome.